my name is Brett. I'm the worship pastor, but Mark is in Israel and he can't preach from there. He can send us a little video, but he can't preach from there. So uh, he brought in the reliever and uh, here I am uh, this morning. Um, well, the Dragon Sunday, welcome to you guys. Glad that you uh, uh, were able to make it this morning. I know that, um, I, you know, I don't know you and, and you don't really know me, but uh, I feel like I do because Alan loves you guys. He talks about you all the time. Uh, when, you know, staff meetings and things like that. He loves what he gets to do with you guys. That is a major part uh, of the way that he uh, ministers, and it's a great, it's a great thing. I, I greatly respect the high school athlete. Um, that, that's just something a part of my family, the way that I grew up. My dad was a basketball coach, and so I grew up around high school athletes all the time. And I, I always, when I was a kid, I always dreamed of the day when I would get to play high school sports. Uh, I really, really looked forward to that. Uh, the, the deal that we have with you guys is this, like we'll buy the tickets and we'll buy the M&Ms and we'll sit up in the stands and we'll cheer as loud as we can. Uh, but what we look forward from you guys is for to see, to see you play hard with all that you've got with integrity and character. Somebody that my, my nine-year-old son could look up to. That, that's, that's the deal that, that we have here. And I, man, I love, I love sports. Uh, the thing that I love about sports the most is I love to play them. Anything that I can have a ball in my hands, I like to play. Um, basketball is number one for me. I grew up in a, in a basketball family. Like I said, my dad coached high school basketball. My uncle coached high school basketball. My grandfather coached college basketball. And so basketball is my thing. But really, anything where I can put a ball in my hands, notice I said in my hands, I can't do the, the kicking of the ball thing. That, that's too much running. Uh, but but uh, anything with a ball in my hands, I, I love to do. That's my favorite pastime. My second favorite pastime is to... Uh, watch my kids play sports, and uh, I got had a full day of that yesterday. We had two flag football uh, flag football games and and one t-ball game. My daughter Emma, she's six, and she hit her first home run yesterday, and so she uh, she cleared the pitcher's mound. It was awesome. Uh, so she's six. Come on, like, <laughs> uh, that's my second favorite pastime. My third favorite pastime is uh, sitting on the couch and watching sports. So I like to sit there and I like to watch, watch sports on TV. Uh, that's one of my favorite. This is the sweet spot for athletics um, right now because when, when the weather turns a little bit cooler, which is going to happen later on, uh, the, the weather turns cooler and they're playing baseball outside. That, that's a good time of year. You have October baseball. You have right in the middle of college football. You have uh, the NFL is going and we're just perpetually disappointed in the Cowboys. That's just an annual tradition of high expectations and a why. Why they're going to win the Super Bowl every year? They still might, all right. They still might. But the uh, you know you have the NFL and even the NBA is starting and, and basketball. This is the sweet spot. This is the time where you can watch your teams. Um, and th- that's my third favorite pastime. But if I'm I'm sitting there on the couch watching TV, if if you could watch me watch my teams, like if if you if you could sit in a chair, like my TV's here, my couch is here. If you could sit next to the TV and look at me and watch me watch my teams. You would think that that guy doesn't like doing that at all. Uh, that, he's not having fun with what he's doing at all. That that might be what you think. Is I I watch one of my teams, whether you know um, it's the Cowboys that I'm always disappointed in, or or, or watching uh, the Aggies on TV. You might you would watch me and say that he really doesn't like what he's doing right now. Um, and I I think I think many of you you get that. Like if you have your team. You know, and it's one of those games, it's a team you bleed for, and you feel that anxiety, that, that nervousness well up in you. 
What is that anxiety about? Um, wrong life priorities, probably, probably that. Uh, but besides wrong life priorities, what, what, what is the deal with that anxiety? I think that sports cause anxiety in us because we don't have control over it. Like if, you, if you think about it, like uh, when, I, when I'm playing sports, when I'm playing sports, I'm not nervous with the ball in my hand. I don't, I don't play nervous I, because I know what I, I know what I can do or, or what I'm supposed to do, what I used to be able to do. I'm, I know what, I know what to do with the ball, so I'm not nervous. I have some control over it. But when you're sitting there watching sports happen, you don't really have control over it. You don't make the play. You don't make the call. You really have very little impact on the game unless you're the fighting Texas Aggie 12th man. Am I right? I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I won't do that again. Uh, today, the, um, so sports cause anxiety in me when I, when I don't have control over the situation. Like those of you that have ever played video games, like like Madden is a is a, a football game you can play on a video game. Um, and and if you've ever played Madden, nobody wants to be the left guard. Nobody wants to be that guy in the video game. They they want to be the guy with the ball, the quarterback, the receiver, the running back. That's who you want to be because you want to control the situation. And when we can't control, there can be fear, there can be anxiety. I remember uh, growing up, um, it, it's kind of a long story, but the, sh- the, the short version is uh, my dad was coaching basketball at San Antonio Madison, and then he got a new job uh, over at Hayes. And so, and so uh, there was actually a two-year transition where he drove back and forth from San Antonio um, uh, up to Hayes, up the highway, for two years to try to make that transition happen so we could sell our house and move. And for one of those years, my seventh grade year of school, I rode with him. So for, it was a 45-minute drive, and for one, one school year, uh, we drove back and forth. It was 45 minutes, and some of you are like, I do double that every single day on the way to work. Um, but, but for a seventh grader, that's kind of a lot. It, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was difficult on days there was a late practice. It was hard um, when there was a school activity afterwards, and we had to spend some nights at my grandparents' house in San Marcos. And, and we made it work, and it was fine, and we were able to move for my eighth grade year, and, and it was fine. But there was one time where it kind of wasn't fine. And it was the day there was a little bit of weather. There was some ice. And so school was still happening. I don't really remember the circumstances. What I do remember is that I didn't, I, I felt as a seventh grader that I shouldn't have to go to school since there was ice. Um, my dad felt like since it was basketball season, we got to get up there because I got practice. I think it's kind of how that went down. So we drove up 35, icy 35. We drove up. No problems. I was late to school, but it was fine. And then after school, we had to come back home. And on the way home, on 35, I don't know if you've ever driven south towards 35. There's Rotama Park over there on your right when you're going south. There's Rotama Park. Um, and, and just north of that, there's a bridge. And when we hit that bridge, um, there was a patch of ice that we hit, and we started to slide across I-35. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where you have lost control in a vehicle. There's a moment of fear uh, there's anxiety, but it's fear. And the, the reason that there's fear is because you've lost control. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you think or what you say. You have lost control. You are at the mercy of the circumstance. And so we, we actually, we, by God's grace, hit no one, hit nothing, and uh, you know, eventually we regain tra- traction and off we go. But it's all about control. I think... Also, that's the reason why people are afraid to fly. I don't know if you are afraid to fly. 
But they say that you're more likely to die in a, in a car crash on the way to the airport than you are to actually die in a plane crash. And yet, so many people are afraid to fly but not afraid to drive. It, it's about control. Because if I'm driving a car, I have the steering wheel, I have the brake pedal, I have the gas pedal. I, I can do what I need to do to drive. When you're in a plane, you're supposed to just sit back and relax. And they're doing something up there. I don't really know what. There's no steering wheel. They're just punching buttons. I don't know what's going on up there. And you're riding in a plane. And that causes anxiety. And I think it's because we don't have control. Now, I think the times that I feel the most scared or the times that I feel the most anxiety are the times when I figure out I'm not in control of anything. I can't control my situation. I can't control my circumstances. I wonder if there's anybody in the room who feels the same way. Do you, are you, are you the kind of person that likes to control your life? Like have all the pieces controlled and you've got it all put together. And I know that if I work harder or I manipulate this situation or, or manipulate that person, then I can fix whatever problem I have. And if you can't fix it, and if you can't make it better, it makes you uh, anxious or angry or scared. Is that, is that anybody in the room this morning, we're going to look at a church who hadn't figured out that they uh, weren't in control yet. Um, so turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. The scripture will also be on the screen if you did not bring a Bible today. So Revelation chapter three. Revelation is a book that can be mysterious and a little bit scary. Uh, but but at the beginning of Revelation, Jesus has risen from the dead. He, he's been away for a time. He comes back and he appears to the Apostle John. And he tells the Apostle John, um, I, I want you to write some letters to some churches. There's, there's seven churches that I need you to address. And, and I'll tell you what to write. I just need you to copy down what I say. And what we're going to do this morning is just look at one of those letters. It's the letter to the church at Laodicea, which begins in verse 14. Now, before we read Jesus' letter that he wrote, what I want to do is I want to spend a little time telling you about this town, Laodicea. And after I explain this city to you and some of the things that they were walking in, I think you'll understand a little bit better of what Jesus is saying. So Laodicea was a town that looked like they had it all put together. Just outsiders would see Laodicea has everything, everything that they could want. You see, they were rich. They were so rich that they, uh, they minted their own coins. They were so rich. In 60 A.D., there was an earthquake that leveled the town. Um, there, there was nothing left. And the Roman Empire, who ruled Laodicea, wanted to come in and fix the town. But the, the people in Laodicea said, we got it. We're good. We don't, we don't want your money. We got it. And they rebuilt their own town. And it was better than it was before. And they added some stuff, like gymnasiums. And they added, they added some uh, more beautiful architecture. It was better than it was before the earthquake. And one of the things that made Laodicea so rich is their wool industry. So they had something that not many other people had. They had black sheep. And black sheep produced black wool. Black wool, you can produce black clothing. Nobody else had black clothing. And so they were able to sell this, uh, th these clothes, these rare clothes, uh, for a high price. And, and their wool industry made them rich. And Laodicea was also famous. They had, a, they had a big medical school, and one of the things that they specialized in was ophthalmology. So if you had some sort of eye ailment, you would go to Laodicea, and they had an eye salve that nobody else had. They were able to produce, and they would help you, and you would be able to see. But not everything was great in Laodicea. Um, 
Laodicea was a town that was built uh, for its strategic location around a crossroads. So a bunch of major roads kind of crossed in Laodicea, so they built a town there. And so that town is built there, and the Roman soldiers would kind of use that town as a hotel, a free hotel. Even better than a free hotel. They would just knock on your door at your house, and they would just let themselves in. And you were obligated to just give them whatever they wanted. You had to feed them. You had to provide for them. Um, in some cases, there are records where the people of Laodicea actually had to give them spending money. They wanted to go out, out and about uh, in the evening or something. They had to give the Romans some spending money. So it was built at a crossroads. And I, I'm sure that the, that the uh, Laodiceans, they, they um, resented the Romans for that. But it was, it was built at a crossroads. It was built there not for its water source. That's usually why you build a town somewhere is because it's got a, a good water source. But Laodicea didn't have great water. They had, they had minerals and gases in their water that would, if you drank it, it would make you, it would make you throw up. Don't, don't drink the water. If you ever go to Laodicea, don't drink the water. So what they had to do is, remember, they had money. So that, that's not a problem. They would just bring in water. Through some, some aqueducts, they would, bring, they would bring in water from elsewhere to kind of take care of their water problem. See, Laodicea had money. They were rich. If they had a problem, yo, they solved it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> they solved it by, uh, by throwing money at it. They would just throw money. We don't have good water. That's fine. We'll just pipe it in. If, if, uh, the, the Romans are, are coming into our town. We don't like it, but we have the money to provide for them. You've got an eye problem. We've got a medical school. Just go pay for what you need. See, they were very self-reliant. And being self-reliant is actually a good trait to have. That's a, that's a good trait to have. That's what we want for our kids. We want them to be self-reliant. They don't have to depend on anybody else, but they can, they can make it happen. But the problem is when you're self-reliant to the extent that your self-reliance and your self-sufficiency just starts to creep into your relationship with God. And then your attitude becomes, God, you stand over there and I'll, I'll get you when I need you. And that's what we're dealing with in Revelation chapter 3. Let's, let's read Revelation 3 starting in verse 14. We'll make some sense of it. So Jesus begins, he says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Pause there real quick so you understand what's happening in um, in ancient letters. They would they would write who the letter was from at the top. So when we write a letter, we put sincerely or yours truly. Does anybody actually sign yours truly? Yours truly, Brett. And so if you get my letter, you start at the bottom to see who it's from, and then you go back up to the top. Their way actually makes sense. You put who it's from at the top. And so Jesus is describing himself. This is like him saying, this is from Jesus. He says the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. And then he says the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing God created. Um, Jesus is the source of God's creation. That's what that, that means there. He's the source of God's creation. So he's introduced himself, and now here's the body of the letter. Let's look and see what it says in verse 15. Jesus tells John to write, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Now, I think gathered in this room here this morning, we would say all together that we we don't want to just kind of get through life. That's really not what anybody envisions for themselves. What we envision for ourselves is not just getting through life, but but conquering life. And that's what Jesus says, the one who conquers. Jesus promises glory to the one who conquers. And so I think all of us would say, well, we want to conquer life. And according to this letter, what is conquering life? What is what does that look like? And according to what Jesus says to the Laodiceans here, conquering. Well, it looks like surrender. In other words, don't leave Jesus on the porch. And Jesus in this letter uses three metaphors to kind of drive his point home. And I want to talk to you about those three metaphors. The first one is the metaphor of water. And what we see in, in this metaphor is that Jesus is disgusted by self-reliance. Jesus isn't indifferent towards our exclusion of him. But let me show you. In verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works. Now, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. You're eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. And he says, I know your works. You might think, well, great. I'm glad somebody finally noticed all the good things that I've been doing. Or it could be the complete opposite. Oh, no, I'm in trouble. Jesus knows my works. Right? And so Jesus says, I know your works. And you're like, okay, what is it? And then he says, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other, but you're not. You're lukewarm, and because you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That word that he uses for spit is a word that's a little stronger than spit. Maybe the translation that you're used to says spew. It's a word that means vomit. You make me sick, Jesus says, because you're lukewarm. What is he saying? Hierapolis was a town that was a few miles away, and they were known for their uh, 95-degree water. They had hot springs there. And, it, and uh, they were good. They were therapeutic. You'd go to the hot tub. It was a good time there um, in Hierapolis. And, and another direction, and a few miles the other way, was Colossae. And they were known for their cold springs. You needed a cold drink of water, you'd go to Colossae. Um, but, but Laodicea didn't really have water you could drink, so they would pipe it in. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it, it wasn't hot anymore, and it wasn't cold anymore. And as a matter of fact, it was filled with minerals and mud just from the aqueducts. They weren't, they weren't going to the source to get their water. They were trying to do it themselves. And Jesus says, that, that makes me sick. It makes me sick. And so Jesus moves on to a new metaphor to kind of drive his point home and explain what's taking place. The next metaphor that he uses is shopping or the marketplace. And beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered. And I need nothing. So understand, Jesus is saying, you're lukewarm in the sense that, that you're, you're not going 
to the source. You're, you're trying to be self-reliant. You say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. If, if Laodicea needed something, they'd just buy it. Water's a problem, pipe it in. Town's busted, build a new one. Eye problem, go pay for some eye salve. And that's all fine, but when that thinking starts to creep its way into the church, when that thinking starts to creep its way into your relationship with Christ, then you have a problem. Nobody says, I don't need God out loud. Nobody says that. But their actions will say what their words won't. And Jesus says, all your self-reliance makes me sick. You see, you, you should only be confident as far as you're able to control the outcome. You, you, should, you should only be confident as far as you're able to control the outcome. And the older I get, the more I begin to realize what I actually control. It's a whole lot of nothing. I can control what, what I do, and I can control what I think, but I can't control anybody else, and I can't control the things that happen to me. I don't really control very much. When I was learning how to drive and I, I was going to go somewhere, my parents would tell me, well, be careful driving. And my response was always, what are you talking about? I'm a great driver. I'm not aggressive. I don't speed. I, I don't make mistakes. I'm not distracted. I, I'm a great driver. And my mom would always say, it's not you I'm worried about. It's everybody else. See, I can control my driving, but I have zero control over everybody else's driving. And I don't control if there's ice on the road or if there's a, a nail sticking out of a board in the, ro- in the road. I don't control that. So, so if I can't control my circumstances, then who does control my circumstances? The beginning of God's creation, the source. Jesus is the one who controls everything. And so if I'm living my life trying to control everything, and I'm, I'm trying to make sure everything's working out the way that I planned it, What am I doing? I'm stealing Jesus' job. I'm stealing His glory. I'm a glory thief at that point. And that's why it makes Jesus sick. Does this describe you? Are you someone that loves to just control every little part? And you're devastated when things don't, don't go your way? You become angry when people just won't do what you know they should do. Are you overly frustrated when your plans fall through? Jesus says here, you, you live life like you're in control, like you've got it all figured out. You say, I'm rich, I don't need anything, but you don't see clearly. You don't have what you think you have. And he continues in verse 17, he says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You are wretched and pitiable. That means extremely unhappy. But wait a minute. How, how can you be unhappy? You're rich. You have all the money that you could ever want. If you have a problem, you just pay for it. How could you be unhappy? The United States of America is the richest country in the world, and yet we have the highest number of psychologists and psychotherapists in the world also. If money made you happy, why are so many Americans unhappy? And the answer is because all the stuff in the world that you could possess, all the stuff that you could buy, None of that will ever give you the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that you were intended to have. 
God, God has created a whole bunch of things, and we try to be satisfied in a whole bunch of created things, but those created things were never meant to satisfy us. Those created things were meant to point us to the one who will satisfy us. See, it's not something you buy. It's someone you know. And Jesus says, you might be rich, but you aren't happy. And then he tells them, you're poor. You're not rich at all. This is extremely ironic. He says, you're, you're poor. And they no, we're not. We're loaded. And Jesus says, well, you're rich in a whole bunch of things that don't matter. And you're like a kid walking around with Monopoly money saying, I'm rich. I have a $500 bill. And you're like, bro, that's a pink $500 bill. That's not worth the, the paper it's printed on. And Jesus says you're rich in things that don't matter. Elsewhere, he says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Because if you store up treasure on earth, all that will be destroyed. And then he not only calls them poor, he calls them blind. You can't see, he tells them. But wait, we have this this medical school and this eye salve. And he says, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But I can tell that you don't see clearly. You think you have it all put together and you think you have control. You're not seeing clearly. You're blind. And then he says, and also you're naked. The the, uh, stylish black garments that you wear can't hide the shame of your nakedness. It can't hide the shame uh, of your sin before God. You, You can't hide that with your style. You think you've got it all figured out, but you're lost. You think you can control everything, but really, you control nothing. You think that you can clean yourself up and make yourself presentable before God, but the reality is, you can't really do that. And the fact that you can't see it, Jesus says, makes him sick. What, what, what if this is us? Like, what, what if we're represented here by this letter? What, what if we have committed ourselves to a life where we've got it all figured out? Everything has its place. God has its place. And everything just kind of stays where it is. What, what, if, what if I'm lukewarm? What if I'm so self-reliant that Jesus wants nothing to do with me? I make him sick. What, what if that's the case? What if, what if we're buying a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter? Last week, someone bought an art piece at an auction for $1.1 million. And I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know anything about art. Um, but there's this piece called Girl with Balloon. And you may have seen this floating around on social media. This piece of art auctioned for $1.1 million. Sold. And the gavel hits. Let me, there's a video. Let me show you what, what happened after that.
And see, the, the artist, he played a joke on him. And as soon as that gavel hit, the painting was shredded. And that's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. What if you're spending all of your time and energy and effort and life on something that as soon as the gavel of life hits, you realize all you've got left is a bunch of shredded paper? Like, what if we're investing our lives into a bunch of things that are just worthless? Or what if we're pushing our kids and investing our kids into a whole bunch of things that at the end of the day is completely worthless? And then we parade around like we're somebody and we've accomplished something. How do you know if you're self-reliant? How do you know if your self-confidence has invaded your relationship with Christ? Here's a little diagnostic. What, what is your response when you lose the illusion of control? When, when things don't go your way, is it fear? Is it anger? Is it anxiety? Because people who are self-reliant don't trust God when things don't go the way that they wanted them to. And they try to fix or manipulate the situation so it achieves their desired expectation. Or what about this? Do you, do you ever find yourself disagreeing with the Bible? Like, like, God says this is true, but that doesn't work for me in this situation, so what I'm going to do is ignore that and say, well, that doesn't really apply to me in this circumstance because it's too hard, so I'm going to ignore that. If you're disagreeing with the Bible, you're, what you're doing, you're telling God, I don't need your input on this. I'm good. Or what about this? When you sense a hope that your life is about to get better, what provokes that hope? Is it more money? More ease or more Jesus? Or this one, how's your prayer life? You pray only at mealtimes or when you're asked to? And you should pray at mealtimes and when you're asked to, that's fine. But if those are the only times you pray, I, I wonder, are you just, you don't need God in, in those other moments? You only need Him to bless your food and need Him to know that uh, you can pray when called upon? Are you... Self-reliant. I think many of us would say that in many areas of our lives, we are self-reliant. We don't invite Jesus into every single area of our life. See, we're, we're people of boxes, right? We, we put things in boxes. We've got a box for our marriage, and we've got a box for our kids, and we've got a box for our hobbies, and we've got a box for our free time, and we've got a, we've got a box for our job, and then there's a box for church, and then sometimes for some weird reason people separate church and Jesus, and so then we've got a, a box for Jesus. And we have everything in their nice, neat little boxes, but the problem is that's not how life works. If, if something is wrong in your marriage, it's going to affect your kids. It's going to affect your work. It's going to affect your free time. If something's wrong at work, it's going to come home with you. You can't leave it in the box. Life doesn't work that way. And here's the real problem. The real problem is that Jesus is not going to stay in the little box that you have built for him. Jesus is claustrophobic, and he won't stay in that box. And Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. See, He is the source of all creation. He has created every single one of us, and He's created every single little nuance of our lives. He's created it. 
And for those of us who are in Christ, a part of the church, the Father sent His only Son. He, he paid the price of His Son's blood. His Son's life was paid on our behalf. We've been bought with the price. We belong to Him. And then we want to say, but, but just stay in your box. That, that's not the way that it works. If you are self-reliant, you are stealing from Jesus. And that, is, that, that sounds negative. And that, that is a real downer this morning. And I don't want to feel down. So let me tell you the good news. In verse 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove. I correct the people that I love. He tells the people of Laodicea, and he's telling us this morning, I love you. Oh, I love, I love you. And you're not seeing correctly. You're being foolish. And I want you to see this, and I want you to change. I want you to change your mindset. And so Jesus begins the counsel in verse 18. He says, let me, let me help you. You've been looking at things all wrong. Let me help you. Let me help you rewire your thinking. You need new gold. The gold that you have doesn't buy things that matter. You need new clothes because the clothes you're wearing doesn't hide your shame. You need new medicine because you're clearly not seeing properly. You've been shopping at the wrong place. You've been shopping at the marketplace of Laodicea, and, and you, sh- you should have been buying from me, Jesus says. You should have been buying from me. You don't have what you need. How, how do you buy from Jesus? How do you buy gold from Jesus? That's the third and final metaphor. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So that's the third metaphor, knocking on the door. The Romans would knock on the door, let themselves in and and, and just kind of help themselves to whatever they needed. But that's not how Jesus functions. Jesus knocks on the door and waits on the porch. And sometimes we read this letter and we think that, that those lines are, are written for people who are not believers in Jesus. That Jesus stands at the door of your heart, He knocks, let Him in, let Him be your Lord and Savior. That's completely fine and that's completely true, but that's not what this letter is about. Because this letter was written to believers. This is a letter to a church. This letter was intended for His bride. And the groom stands at the door and he knocks. Will his bride let him in? Or will she leave him on the porch? Jesus says, if you let me in, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. I'll have have a meal with you. In ancient Near Eastern culture, meals were a big deal. Uh, They were were cultural events. Big cultural events. If, If you had a fight with somebody, you wanted to reconcile that relationship, you would eat together. Everyday meals were huge cultural events. What you were communicating when you ate with someone is you were sharing life with them. You you were sharing your very soul and your entire life with that person. And that's why people got mad at Jesus when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. How could you eat with them? They're bad people. You shouldn't be sharing your life with them. And Jesus, Jesus makes a point out of it. And he says, but the kingdom of God is for anyone that will let me in. See, a meal signifies deep communing intimacy. It took me a while, but I learned my lesson with door-to-door salesmen. Uh, I'm the kind of guy who doesn't want to buy your thing, and I don't have money for your thing. Uh, but I also, uh, I also don't want to be rude. 
And so that's, that's kind of what salesmen are banking on. Not you. I know some of you are salesmen. Not you. Everyone else. Um, that's what they're kind of banking on is, is that, like, am I bold enough to tell you no? And how pushy do I have to be to get you to say yes? So like, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And so uh, several years ago, there was a salesman who um, knocked on our door. It, was, it wasn't too late at night, but it was late enough to where my kids were asleep. And it was a sales and alarm company. We already had an alarm. That seems like an easy Easy. No, it wasn't. Um, because a few minutes later, I find this guy sitting at my dining room table with his price sheet out, like showing me all the things that we could buy. And I'm just telling him that's too much money. We don't want to spend that. We don't want to do that. And so before I know it, this man is wandering around my house, looking in the hallways to see where they could put sensors and where they could save a little bit of money. I'm like, just get out of my house. I don't want you here. I started to learn my lesson. I started to learn no thank you. I started to learn, probably just don't open the door at all. And if you open the door, just kind of crack the door. Tell them, show them that you're not interested. I'm not rude, but I can be short. Often I just leave the sales guy hanging out on the porch. I don't slam the door in their face. I don't want to hurt their feelings, but I may say no thank you and close the door and, and leave them there. I don't know them. I don't want what they're selling. I don't want to talk to them. I don't care about their opinion. I certainly don't want them at my dinner tables. Have you left Jesus on the porch? He has knocked. As a matter of fact, Jesus is knocking now. He's in this room and he's saying, I stand at the door and knock. And he's got something to offer. It's not a new alarm system. It's not pest control. And he certainly doesn't want to know who you're voting for. He's standing at the door, knocking. And he has an offer for you. The offer that he has is not something you buy. What Jesus is offering us this morning is life. Real life. Deep and abiding joy. The satisfaction that you were meant to have. A life that is flourishing, that you can be everything that He created you to be. All that He has called you to be. A life of hope. A life of peace. A life that's free of guilt and shame. A life that ceases from striving, of trying to be good enough to please everybody else. You don't have to please everybody else because your Heavenly Father is already pleased with you. A life that that ceases striving of trying to be good enough for God and I just got to be a better person. No, you don't. You have to have a relationship with Jesus. That's it. That is what he offers, this kind of life. And uh, some of you in the room right now, you're saying, well, I've got life. I've already got it. I, I do this and I have this and I pay for this for my kids. And, and look at all the things we're involved in and look how good my life is. And Jesus responds to you with a letter to the church of Laodicea. And he says, you're missing it. You don't see it. Let me help you. You don't see it. Let me help you. Others of you in the room this morning, you're saying, I I had that life and I want it back. I used to have that life, but I've turned away from it. I I want that life, that, that joy that Jesus offers. I want it back. How do I get that life back? The answer is simple. Open the door and let Jesus in. Like, not tomorrow or next week. Not when you get home later. Now. 
Now, in this room, invite Jesus back in now. And some of you, you're saying, I I have never let Jesus in. Never. What do I need to do? Invite Jesus in now. Don't wait. It, It doesn't take anything magical or anything special. You tell Jesus, I want you in. I want you now. Come be in my life now. And then it says he will dine with you. He will commune with you. Invite him in. Submit to him. Surrender to him. Don't leave him on the porch. He will come in. He will dine with you. He will provide all that you need because he is what you need. And he will give you life. He will give you the life that conquers. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the way that we're going to respond this morning is we're going to sing some songs together here in a minute. We're going to stand. But, but the way that you're going to respond is not necessarily to stand and sing. The way that you're going to respond is you're going to ask, have I let Jesus in? And you may need to stand and sing that declaration. Or, or you may need to stay in your seat. And you may just need to have a quiet conversation with Jesus. Or another way that you can respond is in a minute our prayer team and elders are going to come forward. You, you may need to come have somebody pray with you and pray with you about that. But whatever you do, whatever you do in this room, respond. Jesus is at the door knocking. Won't you let him in? Don't leave Jesus on the porch. Mm-hmm.